0: Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss a single episode.
1: Hello and welcome to the Football Digest podcast. I'm your host, Connor Bromley, and I'm joined today by Ned Keating, and we've got So much to go through today, potentially even our first Premier League second of the season as well, but we'll get into that later in the show. But there's only one place to start, Ned, and that is the uh, mental game we saw yesterday afternoon. I think we all kind of expected Man City and Spurs to have goals but I don't know if we were necessarily expecting a a 3-3 draw, which is what we got. City now three points behind Arsenal at the top of the table. They've also just had three consecutive score draws. Spurs, on the other hand, back on track after three straight defeats. What did you make of the game yesterday? And we will talk about the refereeing decision at the end of the game, but we'll do that in a separate bit. So just your overall thoughts on the game, then we'll talk about Simon Hooper's decision to not play an advantage. Of course, everything that
0: I say here does come with the caveat that I am a Tottenham Hotspur fan, so I will add that at the very start before we start looking at this. Perhaps rose tinted glasses, or maybe lily white tinted glasses—I think perhaps are, are more appropriate this morning. Good game though, wasn't it? We seem to be getting served up these days on the you know Sundays, don't we? You know, obviously you said they're about City three straight scoring draws. Uh, one of the ones—the uh, Sunday 30 kickoffs. Um, that we had before the international break was, course, that that three and four four between Chelsea and and Man City, and then yesterday we get another thriller, like, brilliant game, great advert for the Premier League. Um, you know, two really attacking sides, and you know, as I have to say, that Tottenham Hotspur fan here, so I have to give praise to Ange Postecoglou for sticking to his philosophy, being so bold and so brave. Um, you know, even without so many men that you would say would have been key to Tottenham's performances this season, yeah, you know, Christian Romero being out suspended. James Madison out of an injury, Mickey Van de Ven as well to still play the way that Tottenham do the swashbuckling style. Um, And especially having lost three in a row as well, we're still playing that way, you could have forgiven Andrew Bostecoglou for uh, shutting up shop at Manchester City yesterday, but he didn't. And I think Spurs got a reward for that, a point um, at the end. Never say die, um, you know, to dare is to do is the club motto. And I, I think they showed that yesterday. City will be frustrated though. There are individual errors. Yes, she said, we'll come onto to that referee decision in the moment. And then, you know, that, that, that was an error in itself. But City's players as well, you know, that final goal in particular, Dane Kulusevsky wanted that more than Nathan Aki. That is clear. Nathan Ackie, his hunger wasn't at the same level as Day and Unfortunately, when you're in a title race, you don't get those opportunities to, I don't feel like it today, Gaff. I don't feel as hungry today, gaffy You know, you have to be 100% committed to everybody. I think we saw that with, with Nathan Aki. And likewise as well, Edison making perhaps an uncharacteristic, I mean, both goals, I'd say Edison was was at fault for uh, the first two for Tottenham. Obviously, you know, Nesson's shot squirmed through him. Could he have done a little bit better? Maybe a little bit unsighted with the but he got hands with it. And if you get hands with it, you'd like to think you can get a stronger one as well. Maybe put have palm that around the post instead. And then we're talking about maybe a three-one Manchester City win instead. So there were individual errors for Manchester City, which you know you kind of you might be a little bit concerned about because you know, especially for medicine, someone who is you know normally quite dependable for Manchester City, maybe you just kind of put that off as as a bad game that he has. Just once in a season, and that's it. He's got it out of the way, and you haven't lost. You actually still picked up points from it, or a point at least. So, so you kind of just you know put that to one side and move on. City will be disappointed. Um, you know, Tottenham, being as depleted as they were, I think City would have looked at it and kind of gone, right, here we go. I oh, know it's not a fixture. You know, you go back through the annals of history, and 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 especially against everybody other Manchester City, Tottenham always always seem to get something from a trip to the Etihad uh, more often than not. So, yes, history was on um, top. So, I guess they'd be still a fancy Manchester City going into that game, all things considered, to, to get three points from it. So, they'll be disappointed. Tottenham will be very, very happy to end that run and, and to do some of the performance that they did as well. It was a, was a very brave performance in and a deserved point for Tottenham, I'd say. Do
1: you think Man City are, are lacking a almost that clinical edge in both boxes at the minute? Because you look at the first half in particular, um, I've thought that... Spurs were looking to go in 2-1 at half time. I thought they were excellent in the second half, but I thought going into time, I think most Spurs fans, you probably would have been happy with 2-1 because Haaland missed a couple of chances in particular, which normally he sort of gobbles up. And then in the other box, you, know, you mentioned there for the Kulicevski equaliser, you know, not wanting it enough. You look at that Man City back line though, and they shouldn't be conceding the amount of goals that they are at the minute. And it it just feels to me that there's something amiss in both boxes for them at the moment. I mean, it does feel
0: almost too simple. And I know you're going to laugh at me when I suggest this player's lane for defensively, but it does seem too simple to suggest that they are missing Kevin De Bruyne massively, definitely attacking-wise, but equally as well in, in the upper box, perhaps as well, that they are missing that kind of leadership in, in midfield. Because you, you you have to remember that, you know, the spine of that Manchester City team, not just last season when they won the treble, but for years before that, it has been, you know, I know Roger's coming to replace Fernandinho, but it has been De Bruyne and Gundogan as that midfield pair. It has been for a number of years for City and they lost Gundogan in, in the summer when it enjoyed Barcelona. They kind of think, right, okay, so how do we rebuild? who do we put next to De Bruyne? And in that first game of the season against Burnley to move De Bruyne so early on, I think that's still crossing City. I don't think they have, you know, they do have players like Kovacic and other experienced players around there, you know, Bernardo Silva's no spring chicken. He's been around the Premier League long enough, but in that midfield area and what it takes to work for Manchester City in that area in particular, I think that's what they maybe are missing. And again, that, you know, it's that whole thing about attack and defence, that midfield obviously links it. And yes, I know De Bruyne is not the most defensive minded midfielder, but he brings that experience in there and he tells the players, no, you should be here. I've, I've, you know, we've been in this situation before. This is where you should be playing at this moment and this moment, pulling players around, putting them in positions. You know, Gundogan was captain last year, De Bruyne is captain this year. That's a big leadership gap to be filling as well in the middle of the park. So yes, you know, you can go, oh, it is too simplistic to say that they are missing Kevin De Bruyne, but they are, and they're also missing Ilkay Gundogan. And I think that is, you know, De Bruyne is perhaps, they're missing him in the attacking third, and I think they're missing... Gundogan in the defensive third more so. I know Gundogan had a great attacking year last year, but, but these are two players that it's not just their ability, it's their leadership and, and the experience that they bring in playing in that midfield constantly for Manchester City that I think they're missing this year.
1: Okay, the refereeing decision then, or I suppose the advantage that was given then not. What did you make of that? Because, you know, you're watching that live and, you know, I think everyone's thinking what on earth is the referee doing? Then I'm thinking, oh, well, maybe he's been told that there's an offside and Grealish was maybe offside, so he's brought it back in that you know, because of the talk through the headsets, that's why. Then you see it as well, like, well Grealish wasn't offside. It, it just seemed like a mind boggling decision because he, he played the advantage initially. If he just brought it back then, I don't think anybody would have complained, but he played the advantage. And then as soon as the advantage was being used and Grealish was kind of running in, you know, on goal, he, he brings it back. It just seemed a really strange decision from the referee.
0: Well, even in your suggestion there that he may have thought it was offside, we see so many examples now that they just let it play through and then they show the flag afterwards. You know, if the goal goes in the back of the net, sorry, the ball goes in the back of the net, or uh, you know, misses it, and then they put the flag up afterwards. And I know there's some people that, that think, oh, it's disgusting. If you think it's offside, put the flag up straight away. But at least let you know, it play through to the end, and then we could have had the decision of VAR. Now, yesterday, we didn't have to go to VAR. Listening to Ali McQuist um, this morning on the radio um, saying it's refreshing that, you know, it's it's a mistake, an officiating mistake, and it hasn't involved VAR. And I know it's kind of a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I, I kind of get what you're saying there. It's an honest mistake. You know, Simon Hooper will look back at that and kind of go, yeah, look, I got it wrong. You know, probably panicked, probably got a bit flustered. Um, and it's it's just a genuine human mistake, but it's kind of... I don't know. It almost feels, I kind of get what McCoy was saying, you know, it kind of almost feels nostalgic in a way. It's been a while since we've been, uh, you know, a genuine referee on field human mistake. Normally it happens in the rooms at Stockley Park that we see the the mistakes happen these days. Um, yeah, and it is unfortunate as well, you know, we were speaking off air just beforehand that, um, again, as a, as a Tottenham fan, um, I, I I do happen to remember that Simon Euclid, so he happens to be the man in the middle uh, when, when Luis Diaz had his goal disallowed. And again, that was a, an officiating mistake, but that was caused by Stockton Park, you know, so it wasn't his necessarily poor old Simon's fault that day. We, we can't put too much a to blame on him on that one. But yeah, it wasn't a good look. He'll look back at it and kind of, you know, he will know himself that he got that wrong um, you know, to play it and then stop. And it's, it, it's like when you are uh, you know, a kind of mini roundabout, isn't it? And you're not sure whether or not you go and you kind of go and then you stop and you hesitate and you might cause a crash and, you know, on a, on a driving test, let's say that they kind of flag up straight away, isn't it? And they kind of give you a major four, I think, or, or whatever it's called these days. Um, yeah, from, from a Tottenham point of view, I think we definitely got away with one there from a Manchester City point of view. Yeah. Boots on the other foot. I'd be livid, i would be fuming at that point. Um, you know, it, it was. It, it, he still had work to do there's no denying that Jack Green still had work to do he still had a couple of Tottenham defenders around him but you'd like to think that he would have had at least kind of I think he had a maybe a yard or two head start on them so maybe he still would have bared down on goal and, and tried to finish so yeah he still had work to do he'd like to think that he would have at least got a shot away um, Manchester City have every right to feel aggrieved Tottenham will feel very very lucky and Silent Hooper will feel very very embarrassed I think
1: yeah I suppose does it even out over the season I do remember um, I think it was Akanji scored for Man City against Fulham earlier in the year or Akanji was in an offside position when it was headed in so, and they got away with one that day so maybe it does all balance out over the season but we'll switch now Newcastle against Manchester United on Saturday night and probably say this is the most one-sided 1-0 uh, you could possibly have. Man's United were terrible. I, I, I thought they were almost pathetic in a lot of ways. I mean it was that poor a performance from them. Newcastle on another day probably win that game four or five nil. You know, they were they were that dominant. It just for Man United at the minute, you know, we talk about it on this podcast almost on a weekly basis, but it's one step forward, sort of one and a half steps back all the time. And just when you think, right, maybe they're they're getting somewhere they have a terrible result midweek where they throw away a two-goal lead and draw 3-3. Three, three, and then they go at Newcastle and just drop the stinkiest of performance where they're just lucky to have come away with just a 1-0 defeat. It just, I don't know, it boggles the mind. It must be so frustrating being a Manchester United fan, seeing yeah. how they are so up and down at the minute. <laughs>
0: Well, it's frustrating as me as well, because I think this time last week, I was trying to tell you how Manchester United should be in the top four race and that we we might see the best of them yet because they will they played so poorly, but they've won and that's the sign of a good team. Um, and, you know, I'm kind of wishing that maybe I had voiced those opinions on X instead, because at least I could delete that post. If I'm proved wrong, I can kind of hope no one ever saw it, delete it, and it never, ever happened. Um, and we know one or two people that like to do that, don't we, Color? But yes, in terms of Manchester United, it was... A, yeah, it's, it's mind boggling, you know, how can they turn up and do so well, um, against Everton the week before and, and then just deliver that, that, that's the only way to describe it, isn't it? The kind of disdain with which I'm saying that, um, uh, is, is the disdain with which I have for that performance. It was, yeah, it was shocking. And especially when you think about how difficult, look, you know, well, for the players, it was a difficult build-up because they couldn't get to try there. They had to go sit on a three hour coach instead. How troublesome. But for the fans, it has even worked. Fans had to go through that as well. You know, and they're not getting paid handsomely to go and play week in, week out. So for the poor old fans that had to make that trip and had to make that trip back home in those conditions on the weekend, that's, you know, terrible for them. And you can understand every reason why they're angry. They just look, you know, you say pathetic. I think there's just, uh, you know, they don't care, really. I think that's it. You know, I think that they're not a team. Um and yes, I know it's it's very funny for anyone who listened to it last week and me saying, oh, Manchester United are under up and they're back and now week on on, you know, kind of going full Roy Kane mode here. But, you know, that 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 result with Everton is one where you kind of go right, boys, well, this is what we've got deliver week in, week out. We have to play to these levels. That's the minimum required of us, week in, week out. And in, you know, in the week in ganatasaray away to ganatasaray in Istanbul, sorry, they were uh Shaky there. I mean, that game was comical in the sense that it was just attack, attack. It was, uh, you know, the, even on commentary, I think they describe it as like when you're in the playground and you put the jumpers down and everyone's just going for goal and shooting. Great fun to watch for a neutral. Brilliant, but for a Manchester United fan, you'd be horrified by that because you needed the result and you were thinking, right, well, we've got a good result at Everton. That can give us the confidence to get the result that we need to keep our Champions League hopes alive. So they couldn't do that. And then again, at Newcastle as well, you know, a, a top four rival a team that you'd think would be challenging with you for the top four and you're going to deliver that. Um, Yeah, just, just, uh, yeah I, it's just, yeah, uh, it's just what's going on there. I mean, I can't even find the words for it. I'm not even a Manchester United fan and I can't even find the words for what's going on there this season. It's just for the quality that they have available to them, it is not good enough. Three words sum it up quite nicely, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, on match of the day, I don't know if you saw, but the, the pundits made a really sort of good job of pointing out how poor Manchester United's wingers were, how poor Rashford was and Gornacho, in the sense that they were just allowing Trippier and Livermanto to just bomb past them and had no care in the world of tracking them back. And, you know, you look at the, the defensive Manchester United, no wonder they're under siege when it's just common sense that you track back. You know, you can't just let two players like them, two players as well, who were really good attackers for Newcastle, just willingly breeze past you with not a care of the world. It just seems the the difference between Manchester United and Newcastle, you know, in terms of quality of player, you probably say Man United have got a better squad, but the application of the Newcastle players is so much better than the application of Man United players, because there's no way that Almiron and Anthony Gordon and, you know, Joel Linton aren't doing their job defensively as well as attacking. They, they will track players back and they'll work hard. And every time you watch Newcastle, you see a team that is drilled, works really hard and just tries, you know, their best to to perform in Man United, You can't say the same thing. Even when Newcastle played bad, they got beat at Bournemouth the other week. And, you know, they've got mountains, mountains of injuries. But you couldn't say it was through a lack of trying. Whereas Manchester United on Saturday, to me, looked like a team. I'm not saying all the players, but there were certain players in that team where I would question if they could look themselves in the mirror after the game and say, you know, I did my best to win that game of football. You know, there was too many players had bad days at the office and had days where they essentially half, you know, I don't want to say half-assed it, but basically half-assed it. Okay.
0: <laughs> You look at, you know, again, you know, we we'll talk about benchmarks here and you look at Manchester City, you look at Liverpool, you look at Arsenal, you know, even Tottenham, even Aston Villa. What do all those players in that squad do? They all, they all pull their weight. They all, you know, if they have to track back and defend, they will track back and defend as well. They all know their jobs. They all know their roles. They all know exactly what they have to do. Like you said, there the women's just not tracking back and allowing Newcastle to have a field, day really, um, you yeah, know, especially for Trippier and the like you said, and, and that's the issue, and that probably... You know, that that comes down to the manager, and it's one of two things. Either the tactics aren't right, either he's saying to Rashad and Garnacho, you stay high, don't worry, don't worry about coming back, you stay high, which is, you know, in in this modern age where we have attacking fullbacks, that's just a disaster waiting to happen, as we saw at the weekend. Or they're not listening, they're not getting the message, they're not taking it in on board. You might be saying to them, track back, and for whatever reason, it's not going in. You know, either they're not listening, they're not getting it, or they're not understanding it. And that's a problem then with your communication. Both of those issues, whichever one it is, isn't a good sign. And it's not a good issue to have, you know, either that your tactics are wrong or that your communication just isn't working with the players that you've got. And that's a big, big concern uh, for Manchester United going forward. A big, big concern for Eric Ten Hag. Um Especially if it's the latter, because then that suggests that the players are starting to lose faith in your ability as a manager. And I know we've, you know we've seen it the after the Manchester United managers losing the dressing room. Um, you know, around this time a couple of years ago, I think Olle Solskjaer was was given the bullet, wasn't he? And you know that was probably down to I think the players just didn't believe in him anymore. And I don't know if we're getting close to that situation with Ten Hag, you know. The players that he's got at his disposal should be doing better, but they still, you know, you still kind of look at some of those members of that squad and you kind of think, is Anthony Martial good enough for Manchester United? Has he ever been good enough for Manchester United? No. Um, You know, Andre Anana, a couple of errors again last week at Galatasaray. I know Eric Ten Hag was at pains to point out in his pre Newcastle press conference that the stats say that Andre Anana is the, the second best goalkeeper in the Premier League. Um, but, you know, with my own clear eyes and your clear eyes, and I think the clear eyes of most of our, our listener audience kind of would, would agree that actually he's not the second best goalkeeper in the Premier League. He's, he's had a difficult start to life at Manchester United. Has he been good enough so far? You know, Harry Maguire was a player that they tried to move on in the summer. He's now getting in for whatever reason. And again, we don't know. We don't see the stuff in the training ground as much as we'd like to. Um, and we're not as close to a, a, to the action as much as we'd want to be. But for some reason, Harry Maguire is getting in over five times Champions League winner and World Cup winner, Raphael Varad. So what's happened there? What's gone on there? Um, It's, uh, you know, it it just seems like after, you know, I know I was a pain last year to say, I think there's still work to do at Manchester United. I know a lot of people said that he's had a great first season, got into the Champions League, won a trophy. But I think that that was, you know, getting into the Champions League was in part down to bad seasons for Tottenham, for Chelsea, for Liverpool, which Manchester United benefited from, no doubt. But he still felt like he took a positive step forward last year. There was positivity around the club again. And it just seems that within the first, what is it? Not even four months in the new campaign. We're not even, probably, yeah, 4th of December. We're about four months into the new campaign now, aren't we? And it just seems to have all just dissipated and gone like that. And it shows how quick and how fast things change in football, that you can be this great, positive man enacting positive change one minute and then very quickly results that go your way and it's all going against you the next
1: also defeated wolves at the weekend 2-1 it was one of them where you know after 15 minutes you're kind of thinking oh god this could be a cricket score and wolves found a way to, to come back and you know make a real fist of it managed to get a goal late on and give, give it a nervy finish but these are the type of games you know in my head i'm thinking back to like southampton at home last season for Arsenal, Bournemouth with at home maybe there was a few home games though uh, when they, they drop points that they shouldn't have. And I think the fact that they were able to see through this from being 2-0 up, but then Wolves coming back into it at 2-1, the fact they were able to, to get the three points still and, and not sort of bottle it as uh, they've been accustomed to do in, in the past, I think that's it's a good sign for them. And the top of the Premier League still, you know, it's it's positive vibes. Very different to Manchester but positive vibes at all at the minute. And I was impressed that they picked up the three points after Wolves got that late goal.
0: The concern that I've still got to for Arsenal, you summed it up in that first 15 minutes, could be a cricket score, is that they aren't getting the goals that they need to see games out. Prolific striker, they take their game away from Wolves inside the first 15 minutes, and they don't have that nervy period at the end. Yes, I know what you're saying, and I understand what you said about the mental side and the resilience that they showed to come back and you know, brush that late goal aside to go and get away with a well-done Arsenal there. But... You look at I was, as, as you were kind of asking that question, I was just getting the Premier League table up in front of me again. And, and you kind of look at it. Arsenal have scored 29 goals so far this season. Fair enough, that's you know averaging over two goals a game. But less goals than Liverpool, City, Villa, who ran out of the top four. Newcastle in six have more goals than Arsenal. But even Brighton, Brighton down in eight, have more goals than Arsenal this season. Fair enough, it's only one goal, but it's still more goals than Arsenal this season. So for me, I think that that's still a concern. At some point this season, I think the goals, or at least trying to find the goals that you need to win a title, Arsenal might struggle for if they don't go out in January. And we've said a lot about this on this podcast already, but they need to go out in January and find that 30-goal-a-season striker. They don't have it at the minute. They thought they maybe were buying out with Gabriel Jesus last summer. It hasn't happened for him yet. Eddie Nketiah has shown glimpses, but he's not kind of follow that up consistently enough to kind of say that he's a 20, 30-goal season striker. Maybe that's it. Arsenal just need a 20-goal, not even a 30-goal season striker, just a 21. Um, and that might be a little bit cheaper for them. And that's it. I think they do need a striker in January. And I think that, that game at the weekend, yes, they won it and they'll be believed that they won it. But I think that highlighted the need for a striker because they take that game away from Wolves if they take those chances and they don't have that nervy end to it. I understand you're quite completely great mental strength from Arsenal to, to brush off the setback, come back and go on and win. But for me, I think it highlighted the
1: need for a striker for him in the next month when the uh, when the transfer window opens. Do you think Arsenal are maybe trying to set up in a similar way to Liverpool under Klopp where they had Firmino, who was kind of the number nine, but wasn't really a goal scorer. And then you've got your wingers, Marnie and Salah, which is Saka and Martinelli, who contribute the goals. Do you think they're sort of relying on Saka and Martinelli to maybe get 20 goals each and then the middleman just to contribute maybe 10 or 15 rather than being like Man City where Haaland scores 50 goals and the other players just kind of supplement that? Do you think maybe we are getting bogged down? Because I'm, I'm the same as you. I think I also need a, a genuine proper number nine. But the more I sort of think about it and look at how that Liverpool team was constructed, Maybe Mikel Arteta is thinking, well, Gabriel Jesus brings so many other aspects to the game. You know, he's, he's so good at linking up the play. If our wingers can contribute the, the goals that's needed, then it doesn't necessarily matter if we've got a guy in the middle who's going to score 25 goals.
0: You could be right in that fact, but Kaya Saka at this point has only got five goals so far this season. and Gabriel Martin, then he's got one in the Premier League. So I understand your point, but if the wingers are not backing it up and you're not getting the goals, well, then... It's not really the right way to be playing, is it? I, I'm, you know, you might be right. Yes. As a link man, more of a link man, Harry Kane played well as a link man at and still got the goals. So, you know, I, I, think that, that kind of, you know, I, th- I don't know. I think Arsenal still need that striker. Um, you know, and I've been linked with Ivan Tony. um, and he might be the man because again, he provides that link play. Um, but he also can kind of get in the box, good in the air, good touch. It's just whether or not can he make that step up, you know, um, you know, kind you're based in the North East, you know, you very well know um, about the fact that he was at Newcastle previously and they kind of never, you know, never made the grade there never got the opportunity to make the grade there at least. They've um, really got the chances and had to go and, and rework his career back in the lower leagues before making it into the Premier League with uh, with Brentford and, and it's been great for him ever since really. Um, it's just that question mark, you know, Brentford are good, but Arsenal probably in terms of the tier of the Premier League, you know, probably goes Brentford, you know, teams like at the minute Aston Villa and and you know all the others looking to crack into that those upper echelons, and then you have that upper echelon above. And he's going from Brentford, which is probably just on there, you know, kind of the teams that are battling to go into the top half. To then the teams challenging for Europe, to then the teams challenging for the title. He's, he's trying to make two steps up. I think in the Premier League. Um, I'm not saying he won't do it, but it's it's a you know we, we've seen better players, perhaps more talented players, more naturally gifted players have tried to make that jump before and it hasn't worked out for him. Maybe Ivan Tony can be different. Maybe he can be the man that these Arsenal's were to this year and be that 20-goal season striker that we need him. We might find out next month. We might not. But I still think that Arsenal, that is the number one priority for him next month is to go and find that goal get-up. But then it's the fact, as you said there, maybe they need to find someone who can link the play as well. You know, Harry Kane, maybe he would have been perfect for Arsenal, but, you know, Touchwood you will never go there, and, and he'll stay at Bayern Munich. And you know, maybe one day decide to stop them and win the Premier League with Arsenal, than win it with Arsenal instead.
1: Liverpool against Fulham yesterday. I mean, criminal from Sky Sports to put on West Ham Crystal Palace. Probably one of the worst games of the weekend. Uh, when we had this cracking game at Anfield, Liverpool scored four just ridiculously good goals. Every single goal that Liverpool scored was a, a wow goal. Um, yeah, I, I was just so sort of in awe of them strikes. I mean, the Alexis McAllister goal was as good a strike as you see. I mean, possibly, you know, goal of the season contender. Um, There's probably three in this game to be fair, because Trent Alexander-Arnold's free kick was unbelievable as well, but just four really good goals. Fulham put up a really good fight as well. and, And they'll be bitterly disappointed to concede two goals. Uh, in two minutes, right at the end of the game, and lose the game four three. But to me, this was a sign of that Liverpool team of a, of a couple of years ago. You know, it reminds me of when they beat Barcelona in the Champions League, and they just had that never say die attitude. And I know this is Fulham and not Barcelona, but it felt similar to me. The vibes at the end of the game, the way the crowd went on, that this team's you know potentially going to do something quite special this season. And you know, coming in the face of adversity, coming back and, and winning that game four three, I think was was a, a real statement. From Liverpool, 100%
0: agree with you. I think this team is going to do something special because that's the kind of win. It's one of those ones, you know. I was, I was, uh, I was with my dad yesterday in a pub, and we were getting the updates uh, through. And of course, he was livid when Fulham took the lead so late on, and you kind of go. Yeah, this is is the game that kind of puts a death knell on on Liverpool's title hopes or any title hopes that they would have had because you kind of, those games against Fulham at home, you kind of have to win and you kind of need to win them, you know, because Manchester City will probably beat Fulham at home and and Arsenal as well. Um, Although I think Arsenal dropped points against Fulham earlier in the season, didn't they? So so Liverpool, maybe if they only got a point out of it, they wouldn't have dropped in against Arsenal in the grand scheme of things when you kind of match it all up. But the fact, as you said there, that they went on to win it and how they run it as well, that's going to give them so, so much confidence and so much belief as well. You know, you were saying there about the Barcelona game, I actually think it's that title winning season. You think back to that 1920, and what was it? I think the Aston Villa game, wasn't it? Like the 19-13th minute of, you know, obviously I'm being ridiculous there and, and being facetious, but it was the stoppage time, wasn't it? At Aston Villa, um, and they got a winner. And I think likewise against, was it 21-22 as well, that they left it quite late in a few games. I think Wolves as well, with Bibo Caridi came on from nowhere and, and kind of, I know they didn't win the title next year but they put up a great fight against City in it and, and obviously won a couple of trophies as well. So yeah, I think the belief's back in this squad, I think we saw that at the weekend and that win will give them so much and Trent Alexander-Arnold as well, what a, what a uh, uh, season he's having for Liverpool as well in that kind of, you know, what do we describe it as a, a right, it's not a right wing back because he stops in the middle but he's not a right back and he's not a centre mid. He's kind of somewhere in the middle and he's not defensive mid. You know, FIFA, what was it? The old FIFA games would describe it as an RDM, wouldn't we? You know, kind of just floating between the two and having the lines kind of tracking him in there and everywhere. But great for him as well. Um, you know, he's 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 having a phenomenal season and, and something for the Liverpool fans to get behind one of their own in particular. Um, and that was what he's just going to do both Trent's confidence, which is going to be sky high at a minute, anyway, for the way that he's playing, the world of good, and, and also Liverpool as well. I think they are well and truly back and they are well and truly in this title. And
1: I think on Football Manager, they call it an inverted wing back, I think is the the term that the, the right backs who play essentially in, in several midfields. Sunderland do try and do that, but they're not very good at it. But uh, yeah, it happens up and down the pyramid. Yeah. Um, First Premier League, second, could be on the horizon. Sheffield United lost 5-0 at Burnley. And I talk about Man United being pathetic, but I mean, this was truly pathetic from Sheffield United at the weekend. It's not the first time they've put in a, a really poor performance. Mind you saying that, it might just be that they lack the quality to be a Premier League team. And Paul Heckenbottom even said at the weekend after the game that the owners are more interested in finance than they are football. So possibly one of the reasons why he's been called into the office this morning to maybe explain his comments. Is this one last throw of the dives from Sheffield United to stay up or... I mean, they're currently on pace to finish with about 15 points. You know, it's been that poor a season. Is there any chance that anyone could come in and and rescue this team and get them to finish with the 33 points that maybe need to stay up?
0: Uh, no, in short, <laughs> you know, you're saying there that they're on track. I think I saw a stat at the weekend that, you know, they might be on track if you kind of times it out to, to get 15 points. But actually I think Derby, that horrific derby County side had more points at this stage of the season than, than, um, than the Sheffield United currently have. Roll of the dice. Um, if, if, Chris Wilder is considered the role of the dice. I dread to think what situation you've previously found yourself in, but we're finding out the answer Sheffield United. Um, That first season in the Premier League, they've done really well. There's no getting away from that when they first came back in under Chris Wilder. You know, done done a really solid job there. and Well, more than a solid job. Done a great job to get them into the top half, there's no denying that. And they were perhaps a little bit unfortunate that obviously that second season was played exclusively behind closed doors. So that, you know, I think they got a lot of especially on the Chris Wilder, definitely. Um, they got a lot and the, the players drew a lot from the atmosphere and the crowd at, at Brownell Lane and they kind of robbed of that in that second season. But you're right to point out the fact that, you know, the, the quality isn't good enough in that team. And that is a little bit unfortunate for, for Paul Hackingbottom. Done phenomenally well to get him up last year uh, against the backdrop of a transfer embargo lost key players, didn't really reinvest, didn't have the opportunity really to reinvest in, in the summer to get the players that they need to survive in the Premier League. Um, and, and now they're hoping that the Chrisy Wilder is the man to do that. And again, the thing is, is that In that first, in in Chris Wilder's first stint as Sheffield United manager, he plays in such a distinctive way. You know, we're talking about Trent being an inverted uh, right back. Chris Wilder's got his centre-halves to kind of bow on and play as right wing backs as well, isn't he? You know, such a distinctive style of play that he has. But he was allowed the opportunity to build that team. You know, he he took them up from League One, had a season in the championship before they got promoted. So he's had three seasons to build that squad, to nurture that squad, mould that squad in his shape, in his vision. He won't get that opportunity this time around. The players that he's got there aren't his players. They aren't used to playing. You know, I know there's still a couple that that are still around from, from his previous fell in charge, but the majority of that squad haven't played the way that Chris Wilder likes to play, wants to play. And as I say, it's a distinctive style of play. It's not like, you know, if you played under Pep Guardiola, you could quite probably quickly fit into Arsenal and Mikel Arteta. It's not like that with Chris Wilder because it is so distinctive, so different, and that will take a bit of time to adapt. Um, and he might have the players that are used to it. That you know, he he built that squad because he knew those players could play in the positions that he wanted to. You know, you look at Jack Robinson was playing centre half for them. He was a left back originally, and then attacking left back. In Liverpool he goes and plays centre half. He can slide into that role where he bumps down the wing, um, as, as Chris Wilder likes from his centre uh, from his centre backs. I think it's you know, bless him, enjoy the ride, Sheffield giant fans, because I think it will. You know, I don't anticipate them being around in the Premier League next year. And, you know, Chris Wilder, good luck to him, but I think it's difficult on all accounts because, you know, they won't be able to get the players in that they want to be able to play in football that Chris Wilder will play and Chris Wilder won't have the players that he needs. It's disposable to make that uh, that quick jump as well once he gets in there.
1: You know how I'd love to see, get I know Chris Wilder seems to be the favourite, but imagine if Neil Warnock, you know, had that one last hurrah, because this is what he does, isn't it? You know, this is what he does at championship level. He he comes in late in the season and he he picks up a few wins and, and gets things going. I just wonder if that kind of appointment makes more sense, because the thing with Chris Wilder, if he takes the job now, is... The writing's on the wall for Sheffield United season. The chances are they're probably going to get relegated with less than 20 points, no matter who they bring in, because their team's that poor. So, while that probably is it's going to struggle to be there next season, because they'll likely have done so bad through no fault of his own, to me, they need a short-term appointment to the end of the season, rather than somebody to build the football club, because it's basically a firefighting job at the minute. You know, there's no building, there's no preparing for the future. It's let's see if we can try and stay up, but ultimately, you know, you want the the person to take the job in the summer when you're relegated and and rebuild the club properly. So to me, I would just love to see Neil Warner back in the front. I think it would be drama. I think it would be great to have him in. I think for people like us who, you know, look at press conferences all the time, I think it would be a, a fantastic appointment. I don't know. Is it, Are we too far past Neil Warnock in the Premier League? Do you think that's just never going to happen?
0: Is third on your list by any chance Sam Allardyce? Uh, Sorry, second on your list Sam Allardyce and third Tiny Pulitz by, by any chance? Martin O'Neill as well does the feature on your list at all? No, I don't think it matters too much who's going in there. Um, you know, you feel sorry for Sheffield United because they've done so well last year to come up uh, as, as we said, there gets a backdrop of a of a transfer embargo, and they've not been able to fully capitalise on their return to the Premier League. And you kind of feel sorry for the fans in that respect because you know it is tough. Yes, you're in the Premier League, but it is tough watching your team get beat week in week out and, and heavy defeats as well. You know, such as the Monday weekend. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's it's a it's hard to see it get better in terms of them climbing out the relegation zone between now and the end of the season. Um, And it doesn't, for me, you know, I'm sure many Sheffield United fans if they're watching this, listening along to it, will like to remind me of this come May if they do stay up with Chris Wilder at the helm. But I don't think it matters who's in charge. I still think the writing's pretty much in the wall for bless them.
1: Yeah, well, what a a sombre way to end this podcast. But thanks, Ned, for joining me today. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we will catch you next time.